As wild populations rebound against human-dominated landscapes, scientists are predicting a sharp rise in human-bear interactions. The closer humans and bears get, the more we're going to have to deal with one another. The latest research says we can either make changes to foster a happier coexistence or continue to bump up against our 700-pound toothy neighbors. And if you think sharing the earth with a bear sounds hard, have you tried sharing a bed with a human? Despite the cover hogging and changing sleep schedules we're up against, rare new data on co-sleeping couples reveals the trials of sharing a bed are actually worth it in the end. Whether it's a willingness to share land with a predator or covers with a partner, science suggests that in order to truly coexist, humans need to become better neighbors and bedfellows. This is The Abstract, a look at the latest scientific discoveries and technology innovations from the reporters at Inverse. In each episode, we explore a single theme through two different stories. Up now, while humans are already notoriously grumpy about their neighbors, ugly fences and loud music may feel like nothing compared to what scientists predict is coming next. Bears. A bear that keeps showing up for food. Spotted in a Los Angeles neighborhood for the second day in a row. The bear walking on two feet, strolling down driveways, seemingly unbothered. Three bear sightings all way too close for comfort. Hey, boo-boo. An unexpected furry neighbor. A black bear. This morning it roamed streets and backyards before finding a spot up in a tree to relax. A bear was wandering through a neighborhood. A fully grown 300-pound black bear was spotted roaming around yards and even jumping fences. Making himself cozy in LA. The problem is, this was somebody's driveway. See that bear? Holy sh**. Grizzly bears are expanding in Yellowstone, the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem, Southwest Alberta, Canada, and perhaps even your cul-de-sac. Humans and bears are increasingly living in closer quarters, and unless we figure out how to live with our 700-pound toothy neighbors, human-bear conflict going to be a problem. According to a study published July 2020 in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, our current coexistence with bears not going well. Why are you breaking my kayak? Bear, stop that! Stop that, bear! It's the end of September! Why are you here? You're supposed to be asleep! Bear, stop that! It's not even food! It doesn't even taste good! Bear! But you probably didn't need a viral video of, quote, crazy girl freaking out on bear eating her kayak to realize that. And bears, for their part, they're trying. For one, they've adjusted their schedules to come out at night as if to spare us from an afternoon bear sighting panic attack. It turns out it's actually humans that need to make a bigger effort. Here's what the study team suggests. A social tolerance for predators. Basically, we need a willingness to see land as both our home and the home of a predator. So how do humans become better neighbors to bears? Joining us with more is Inverse's Emma Batwell. Hey, Emma, how's it going? Hey, Tanya, I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. So question, how did bears become something we have to think about? You know, how did we end up living in such close quarters? Yeah, um, it's actually pretty interesting. This is sort of a, a rebound effect that the expert that I interviewed about his study sort of explained to me. So essentially in the 1950s and, and earlier, we saw sort of these large scale federally funded predator control programs. Um, most of these were kind of aimed at wolves or coyotes, um, but they also affected bears. Since then, we've seen sort of, we've seen a scale back of these. We've seen sort of a change in attitude toward how we control predators. Uh, generally, people see it as less humane to kill them, which is 
generally a good thing. And as a result, the expert I interviewed explained that we're sort of trying to see bears expand in areas like Yellowstone, um, the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem, and in Southwest Alberta and Canada. So now this interesting experiment in coexistence is, is kind of taking place here. It's funny that it's the bears seemingly the ones making the effort here. For their part, how have they been adapting? Yeah, this is actually pretty interesting. So what they noticed in this paper is that we're starting to see sort of some nocturnal behavior, um, which ends up being advantageous for the bears. Human-bear conflicts are reduced at night. So bears that are living in human-dominated areas tend to increase their nocturnal behavior between 2 and 3% per year once they pass the age of 3. And that small increase is linked to another 2 to 3% increase in their chances of survival each year. But that's not really enough to, to save them. There are still, so younger bears who live in human-dominated areas, they have 7.5 times higher mortality rates than bears who live in wilderness areas. So that's still a pretty significant problem. And there was some really striking data in the study that kind of speaks to this. They were analyzing demographic data from you know, 2,600 grizzly bears, and they found that it takes 14 years for a bear to truly learn how to coexist with a human. But for every bear that makes it to that age, 29 in that cohort will die. So it's not really a, even with these sort of small adaptations, it's not a great picture. So what can we actually do to try coexisting with bears? What's on the table in terms of what humans can actually do? Yeah, one of the things that the author and I talked a little bit about is this sort of social tolerance for for predators. I mean, that's way easier said than done, right? I think, but um, there are sort of these structural changes that can kind of be indicative of creating that social tolerance for predators and that we create systems that, you know, make it easier for them to avoid having conflict with us in the first place. So one of the things that they kind of mentioned in this study is building things like crossings over and under highways to avoid collisions with large uh, wildlife and sort of thinking of different ways of disposing of roadkill. In some earlier research, also looking at bears in British Columbia, this author sort of noticed that roadkill is sometimes put into these roadside gravel pits and those attract bears, which obviously can create a problem. So they sort of think about ways to keep bears out um, and to sort of install electric fences around things that act like attractants. So like garbage dumps or areas where there are livestock to create uh, lessen the chance that there's going to be conflict between humans and bears. And so this concept of social tolerance, is it one that humans want to adapt to, you know, to actually exist or coexist, I should say, with wild carnivores? It seems like evidence suggests that it's it's probably truer than we think that we have that in us. So at the very least, why should humans consider trying? Yeah, I think that it's sort of a change in mindset that at least this study and some previous research has been a long time coming. It's this idea that you don't have to necessarily cleanse your area of, of predators. You can find ways to sort of exist alongside them. And some of that actually is about having different attitudes towards living alongside them. So there was this 2014 survey that looked at what people's attitudes were towards controlling predators. They compared it to another survey done in 1995, and they saw that when you're talking about preserving livestock, there still is you know, a favor in terms of predator control, but there is a demonstrated preference for non-lethal forms of animal control. So a lot of about living with predators and developing a social tolerance can start at that most basic level of a fundamental understanding that we don't have to kill these animals to exist with them. We just have to rethink some of the ways that our society is built to accommodate them as well. Somebody to think about as, as quarters continue to get closer here. <laughs> Emma Batwell, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Tanya. 
sleeping with a partner requires navigating cover sharing, different bedtimes, and changing wake-up schedules. However, new research suggests that the trials of sharing a bed are actually worth it, especially when you both doze off. Up next, how sharing a bed may affect your relationship as well as your brain. How to share a bed. We're still bed sharing. Are you getting a good night's sleep? My husband snoring concerns me. He thinks it's funny. Sleeping in a separate bedroom. Actually, a lot more common than I thought. I think the key to a happy life and a happy marriage is having two separate beds to sleep in. What's keeping you awake at night? My partner. Contrary to popular belief, or at least to the complaints from millions of tired Americans everywhere, sharing a bed can actually be worth it in the long run. Going against conventional wisdom and previous research on sleeping with a partner, a study published June 2020 in Frontiers of Psychiatry found that co-sleepers overall had longer undisturbed fragments of REM sleep when they slept together. When these couples co-slept, they said their sleep quality improved. But the scientists didn't actually see any changes in total sleep time or how long it took people to fall asleep. What they did find were these increases in the amount of REM sleep itself. It's the biological happenings when we're zonked out that make all the difference. REM sleep, typically when we dream, has a heavy effect on the body. Here from the Mayo Clinic is Dr. Lois Cron, who explains. Things speed up, except a person cannot move, they're paralyzed. And that's actually felt probably to be a rinsing function to clear the brain of toxins and byproducts. And that just allows the body a chance to recover from the busy day. During REM sleep, the body's ability to regulate temperature is also impaired. The study argues a partner may help body temperature stay stable, thus keeping one's stay in REM stable as well. One of the study's more confusing findings? That couples also tend to sync up when they sleep, which amid all the kicking, snoring, and fighting for the covers seems to make no sense. Nevertheless, the research team goes on to conclude that sharing a bed doesn't have to mean missing out on a good night's rest anymore, and in some cases, you may see yourself more rested than you might expect. Here to explain more about this is Inverse's Emma Batwell. Hey, Emma. Hey, Tanya. How are you? Some of these studies seem so counterintuitive, but we learned that there are benefits to sharing a bed. Who would have actually thought? Yeah. So the study that this is based off of is it's based off of these 12 heterosexual couples, and they'd been sleeping together or had been in a relationship, I should say, for 23 and a half years. So these are people who've been together for a long time. Basically, they're, what they're finding is that in these couples, we're seeing sort of different changes in the architecture of REM sleep, which is sort of that time during the night when processes like dreaming or memory consolidation happen. So people who slept together or couples who slept together as opposed to when they slept apart, they had sort of these longer fragments of undisturbed REM sleep, which is kind of interesting because they are actually a bit more restless. They tend to move around a little bit more. The percentage of the time in the night that they were cycling through the same sleep cycles. So, I mean, all humans go through different sleep cycles. And when a couple slept together, they saw that there was sort of this synchronization of their sleep cycles. It went up from about 30 36.6% of the night was spent uh, synchronized with synchronized sleep cycles, and that actually increased to 46% when couples slept together compared to when they slept apart. See, that seems to make no sense. <laughs> so what do we make of this? What are some possible explanations as to how this would happen? Yeah, I think they're a little bit counterintuitive. So the lead study author has sort of two working explanations. One of them is basically just that during REM sleep, your ability to regulate temperature is sort of impaired. Your body's doing other stuff. And if there's someone else in the bed, the body temperature may stay stable. I mean, these are not 
not really borne out by the study. These are just sort of his interpretation here. And then the second one is sort of psychological in that like a partner might make you feel a little bit more secure. He sort of mentioned that REM sleep can be disturbed by, you know, stress. And if you're in a relaxing and safe environment, you might actually fall into that level of sleep easier. Like you said, this, these are very strong relationships here. Relationships seem to have the biggest impact overall. Should we consider that, that this was done with long-term relationships, heterosexual couples? This is a limited study. Could there be other X factors that dictate how this could possibly shake down more broadly? Yeah, this is just a pilot study. That's not to say that, that it's not pretty cool, because what they're doing is they are really applying sort of a really in-depth look at sleeping together, sleeping apart. The couple slept in a sleep lab, and they spent you know two nights sleeping together in a sleep lab and two nights sleeping in separate rooms. So it was a pretty it was a pretty well designed setup there, but it's still a small sample size and you're only looking at how these heterosexual couples. So it's really hard to know any more beyond the scope of this study really. But I think the larger takeaway actually is that it's a little bit counterintuitive and that's what the author brought up when I spoke to him is that he sort of said that there's this idea that if you sleep with a partner, maybe you feel like you slept better, but you know, people are going to tell you, well, you probably moved around a lot more. You probably were disturbed during the night. His sort of party line here was that it's totally fine. There's probably nothing to be said against it. And maybe there's a chance that you're even sleeping better, but that's going to have to be borne out by more work. Interesting stuff. Full stories at inverse.com. Emma, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks. Head to inverse.com to read more about the latest research on all things coexistence. You can click on the link in the show notes for all stories we talked about today. If you agree that science and facts matter more than ever, give us a rating and review on iTunes to help more people find The Abstract and other podcasts like it. New episodes of The Abstract are released three times a week. Find old episodes and more original reporting on science, innovation, culture, and entertainment at inverse.com. Look for The Abstract Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you use. For Inverse, I'm Tanya Bustos. Thanks for listening.